Two and a Half Admins, episode 25. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you've got another blog post from your company to plug, Alan. Yes, uh, this time Tom wrote about WireGuard, the VPN. Uh, so the people over at NetGate that make PFSense sponsored the in-kernel uh, driver for WireGuard on FreeBSD. And we have a tutorial on how to use both the user space version and the in-kernel version that'll be coming in 13.0 uh, in a couple of weeks. Right, well, link to that in the show notes as usual. So I wanted to talk to you about Stadia and game streaming in general. Stadia last week made the headlines for shutting down their internal game studios. And so Google is now not going to be making any original content for Stadia. And so everyone is saying, oh, doom, gloom, this is what we knew was going to happen. They're going to shut it down like they do everything. And I've seen quite a few people saying that what Google could have done with Stadia is make incredible games that have the best graphics, like way better than any other platform. And they could have competed on that because they've got the data center horsepower to do that. But instead, they just were the equivalent of mainstream consoles and PC gaming. And so they didn't really have anything to offer. And we started talking about this in a private text chat. And I said, save it. Let's talk about it on air. Jim, you said that it's just not as simple as that. No, it's really not. Um, you can do amazing things rendering graphics, you know, with a giant computing cluster, sure, but that's not really something that you're doing in real time. Once you start talking about taking on a complex task with, you know, a massive distributed network, you know, of compute nodes, you've thrown the whole idea of latency out the window. You're not looking for latency at that point. What you're looking for is, you know, throughput. Can you do a tremendous amount of calculation? Yes. Can you take, you know, a, a job that needs to get completed in microseconds and, you know, return it? Not so much. When you want to do, you know, the one task for the one game and have it happen in real time for the gamer, the best way to do that is with one big, powerful machine. Could Google have done something like say, well, you know, we have some economy of scale here in that we assume that a Stadia user isn't going to be playing games, you know, literally all day long. So it's kind of like buying one Xbox and, you know, renting it out to three people in, you know, wildly different time zones that presumably won't all be playing at once and making your money that way maybe, but, you know, you don't really get a whole lot out of that because at the end of the day, you've still had to, you know, make that one really expensive machine that somebody's playing games on. And there's also the issue that even there, all the major manufacturers have pretty much given up on, you know, multiple GPU solutions for gaming also. Uh, you know, SLI, everybody got real excited about in the uh, early 2000s. But uh, for the most part, I don't think NVIDIA and, uh, or, or AMD, either one, are even supporting it in gaming cards anymore. They still do. Like my brand new Asus motherboard specifically has the stuff to be able to have three GPUs. But the cards don't support it. No, they, have the, they still have the little bridge thingy. Most of them don't. Most of the cards don't anymore. And the ones that do, I've seen some demos where it makes virtually no difference to frame rates. Yeah, in, in some cases, uh, implementing SLI can actually drive your frame rates down. Right. You know, if the, if the game hasn't very specifically been developed as an SLI game, uh, a lot of the time you end up with a little bit lower frame rate than you would with, you know, a single card of the same caliber as either of the ones that, you know, you try to jimmy together. Mm. So that that take that, you know, oh, Google could have made the most amazing games ever because of all of their, you know, enormous cloud infrastructure. I'm not buying it, man. I somewhat see the point of this whole idea of streaming the game rather than have it playing it locally. You know, if you save having to buy the expensive console and so on. But 
do people do that? Like if you're into games enough, you probably end up with the console or the the gaming computer. And then the streaming thing is like, well, what do I want that for? And so, you know, I've seen the things where I want to run the game on my gaming computer, but stream it to my TV and play it there as more interesting than paying Google to let me stream it off their machine. And the advantage there is that streaming with my house has a lot less latency than anything that involves the internet. Yeah, exactly. If it's on your super fast LAN. Well, it doesn't even have to be gigabit LAN or Wi-Fi even is fine. It's the latency is low compared to going to the internet. Yeah, that's what I mean, because it's it's meters away rather than tens of kilometers away. It's It's not so much the linear distance as it is the number of devices that you have to go through. There's effectively not any latency involved in a wire that's, you know, X amount of meters long. However far that scales, you know, where the latency creeps up is when you've got to bounce that, you know, from router to router to router along the way. That's where your latency really comes in. But either way, you know, it's a case of, you know, you can argue that like, well, you're going to have internet related latency anyway, because all the games that anybody care about are multiplayer. So you've got the latency for, you know, people to get to the cloud server that hosts the game and yada, yada, yada. But where you don't have that latency is, you know, literally in between like your keyboard and mouse and your own display. And, you know, making it to the point where nothing can happen locally, every single thing has to make a round trip to that server and back to you, you know, for every kind of calculation, it's really kind of a no-go. But Google have done a very good job of this by all accounts. The the latency doesn't feel that big for people from, I mean, I've not tried it personally. Well, I tried Pac-Man and the the latency was just nothing, but obviously that's Pac-Man. But even for really high-end games, apparently it is very playable if you've got a solid connection, that being a big if, of course. If you've got a solid connection and, you know, not just a solid connection in general, but it's solid right then and, you know, your little brother doesn't jump on and, you know, try to send a, you know, a 20 meg email or something while you're playing and blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's, there's an awful lot you're depending on there. And you're talking about, so for casual gamers, this is one thing, but you know, we started this whole segment talking about this idea that Google could make the most amazing games ever in theory that, you know, look so much better and blah, blah, blah. So what you're talking about now is trying to appeal to this super hardcore gaming set and like, those folks will go nuts, man. They're like, oh, it's, you know, I, I need 144 hertz monitor. You know, I did the latency in my refresh on my monitor isn't enough. You know, I need mm. every last frame per possible second. You know, my ping time is everything. I refuse to play with people who are on Wi-Fi, you know, yada, yada, yada. Like, and you're wanting to tell these folks like, oh, yeah, turns out, you know, you, you need to stream everything. There are some interesting things with doing something like Stadia. Like I remember the first couple of versions of these were like, you know, literally racks full of Playstations and like a robot to insert the fucking disc and stuff. Uh, those are all long gone. But, you know, looking at the way NVIDIA is looking at, hey, get our high-end Tesla things where, you know, you can run 10 different video games off this one card and you could basically do multi-tenancy. That can be somewhat interesting, but in the end... I'm with Jim that anybody who's a hardcore gamer is already so far removed from this concept of being able to stream it. And then if you're just down to the lower end people, they're not, you know, do they play enough games to be willing to spend the subscription for it? They probably do, honestly. I mean, so so casual gaming is a big market force right now. You know, basically, especially since the pandemic, you know, everybody is a casual gamer now. And you could have a relatively low subscription rate, you know, when you're doing stuff like you're talking about, where you've got one machine that's able to, you know, run the games 
for a bajillion people at a time, and all they need is this relatively cheap device that streams everything down and all the processing happens in the cloud for casual gaming, that sounds like a pretty big win to me. But the key here is, you know, you're appealing to folks who are like looking to play like, like Animal Crossing on a Switch, you know, level of gaming. Like, you know, something like that will be fine. And if it's low end enough, it's like they could just play it on their phone and not need to stream it. Yeah, um, except, you know, then... So if you're if you're looking at this from, you know, kind of a full stack approach, the way Google originally was with Stadia, now you're saying, well, they could just play it on their phone. Well, sure, they can just play it on their phone, except that everybody has a different phone. Right. And your game needs to operate on all those phones. You need to target all that and yada, yada, yada. Whereas if you're just developing it for Stadia hardware, you develop for one single platform. It works, period. It streams out to people. It's fine. Yeah. You also potentially have significantly lower power consumption on your phone or other mobile device which is mm-hmm. another, you know, big potential win. Uh, there's legs there, in my opinion. But again, the focus pretty much has to be casual gamers, you know, Animal Crossing or like, you know, what what in days gone by would have been like the Game Boy crowd, you know, like that stuff's perfect. Honestly, I think Stadia would be more appealing if it was outside of Google, just because Google has such a history of killing things. The one other thing I would say is that the subscription models for some people is maybe less appealing. For a lot of people, buying another video game is kind of a, an impulse purchase, whereas a monthly subscription is something you have to keep doing over and over again. Yeah, but it depends on how much that subscription is. And there's also just different people respond to these things in, in different ways. Uh, and we kind of have to make sure that we're aware of our own biases as like, you know, really technical nerdy folks. We tend to think kind of differently from, you know, John and Jane Q public. As we all know, I write for Ars Technica, and uh, one great example of this is that the highest performing, you know, Wi-Fi mesh platform I've tested is, uh, you know, an outfit called Plume, and Plume has a subscription model. You have to pay them money every, you know, it, well, it's it's annual now, but, you know, effectively, you're paying them money every month for the, just to be able to use your Wi-Fi. To Ars Technica readers or most of our podcast listeners, that's just an immediate hard no. Like, you want me to rent my Wi-Fi? Get the hell out of here. I buy it and I'm done with you. But (laughs) as just crazy, over-the-top angry as really technical folks get about that, it has not been an issue for their retail success. Uh, They have been incredibly successful with general consumers who frankly don't give a crap. They just want something that works. And, you know, if if you got to pay 50 bucks a year for it, fine, whatever. I think you're going to see potentially a lot of the same thing again with this casual gamer crowd where it's like you don't have this big investment of saying like, oh, no, man, I need to buy my game because, you know, I might want to play Dragon Force 3 The Awakening 20 years from now because it's so awesome. Whereas most people are just like, you know, I want my little game to waste my time with right now and have a little bit of fun. And, you know, in a month or two, I'll be on to something else. And maybe I don't want to get tied down to it. Maybe I just want to say, hey, I pay the gaming bill. I can play whatever freak game I want. That sounds great. Yeah, they want to plug their controller into a laptop, fire up Chrome, go to the website, start playing instantly, not have to worry about, oh, right, I need to download this huge update that's like 25 gigabytes or whatever. And then that hour that they've got free to play games, half of it's gone with the updates. And it it takes a few of those frustrating experiences with an Xbox or a PlayStation to move people over, I think. And once they see, if they really can deliver that instant gaming experience, I think that is enough for people who are you know, I've got a bit of disposable income to just say, yeah, well, whatever. I'm, I'm, it's just like another Netflix or whatever. 
You know, Jody, your point earlier that it's a shame that Google were the ones who did it. Um, that was my point, by the way. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry for Alan's point. Um, it sounds kind of funny saying this on, you know, such a, a FOSS focused podcast, but it's a shame this wasn't Microsoft's project because <laughs> for all their failings, Microsoft has actually done a really good job, you know, fostering a lot of game studio development. Uh, so maybe this should have been Microsoft Studios running on Azure. Maybe it's not too late. Well, what about Google white labeling it to someone like Microsoft? I kind of think of it more in the Netflix model. It feels like kind of like, you know, Netflix eventually got to the point where they want to make all their own TV shows and movies and not have to license stuff from other people. And I felt that was the direction Google probably originally planned to go with Stadia was here. You can have all the games you're used to, but we're going to spin up our own studios and make our own games. And then we're not going to have to pay money to all the game companies. We'll just own the platform end to end. And now they're giving up on that. Yeah, but then they saw what happened with um, Cyberpunk and thought, mm, actually, spend all that money and you still get a shit game out of it. I could be wrong, but I feel like it's more likely that, you know, Google just looked at the rest of their business and was like, you know, this is a lot of work for, you know, this amount of money when we can just sit on our asses and, you know, watch all the search and advertising stuff roll in. Yeah, it's too much work. Abandon. Yeah, or, you know, at some point they were just like, this, this isn't helping core Google, so it's just a waste of effort. Google's done a bad job of, even when you pay for a service, it doesn't mean they're not going to kill it. With a lot of services that are free, you always have the risk of, I'm not the customer, I'm the product, and the customer might change, uh, or what they want might change. But, you know, generally with the service you're paying for, as long as it's big enough to be viable, it's usually pretty safe. But that's not true with, you know, your Amazon Goog face and so on. <laughs> yep. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, Linode offers simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and more easily. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 credit on S3-compatible object storage, manage Kubernetes, and more. Let us know about the projects you've been using Linode for, and we might mention them on the show. Our website is hosted with Linode, and we're really happy there. So go to linode.com slash two and a half and click on the create free account button to get started. That's linode.com slash two and a half. Let's do some feedback then. Peter wrote in, just listening to you talk about Bitcoin, and it occurred to me that the true value is its lack of attachment to government and the banks. Isn't that what it was originally developed for? Does it therefore follow that if a government imposes regulation on Bitcoin, then its value will crash? Uh, that depends on what regulation the government actually imposed and how that makes, you know, the various people who are holding Bitcoin feel about it. Because, you know, at the end of the day, that's Bitcoin's only value is people deciding I want Bitcoin enough to pay money for it. You know, once they stop doing that, then the value of Bitcoin is gone. Just saying regulation isn't enough to, to answer anything. Part of, you know, presumably the kind of regulation that you might see out of governments would literally be to impose stability on it because it is highly volatile. Yeah, and don't forget that the price of Bitcoin went up massively 
after PayPal got involved and started allowing Bitcoin wallets, although not properly and you can't get it in and out properly, whatever. But And yes, correlation doesn't equal causation, but I'm not having it that it's a coincidence that PayPal started supporting Bitcoin and the price went through the roof. Right, because the more people on it, the more useful it is. But it just goes to show that they've not actually managed to be disconnected from the banks, because if you want to buy Bitcoin, you buy it with real money from your The Bank account. Uh, or PayPal, which is basically one of the banks. That's not fair, Alan. That's that's not fair at all. That's like saying that, you know, the uh, the renminbi is, is based on the dollar because you can buy them with dollars. Well, you can get them other ways, too. If you want Bitcoin, you don't want to buy money for it, and you don't want to mine it, you can provide goods or services to somebody who's willing to pay you in Bitcoin. Yeah, but what, what I want is to turn that Bitcoin back into money in the end. And so it's usually difficult to actually manage to get completely out from under the bank. Well, that's the thing, though. Do you necessarily want to turn it back into fiat currency? Or do you want to just use it as what it was arguably made for in the first place, which is not just as an asset and store of value, but as an actual currency to be traded and to buy goods and services? What you're getting at here is the, you know, this this hippy dippy libertarian idea of, you know, escaping the fiat currency is not really escaping the fiat currency. It's replacing the fiat. It's saying instead of the fiat being my government, the fiat is, you know, these millions of, you know, super fun, you know, ANCAP, you know, <laughs> libertarian folks around the world who all as a community are, you know, the fiat that provides value to Bitcoin. And the problem with that is that, you know, those fuckers are kind of unreliable and you don't know what they're going to do and it's volatile as hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Christian writes to us, where can you get information about some of Linux's historical quirks? For example, a directory can be deleted even if it is used as the current directory for a shell. However, if you CD into a mount point, you can no longer unmount it. This seems kind of contradictory. Any idea why that is so? So it's not actually contradictory when you understand what's going on. You can delete a directory even if it's used as the current directory for a shell because what happens is it's deleted from the active file system, but as long as any file handle is open to a directory or a file that's been deleted, uh, those blocks are maintained open and they can be changed and read by that process, but no other process can access that file handle. And once that process that still had that file handle open closes, or just closes the file handle itself, then now those blocks are marked just completely gone. They can be reused for other things and everything's fine. But when you unmount an entire file system, you have removed access for that absolutely for everybody because the whole system no longer has that mounted. So you can't unmount something that has any kind of an open file handle on it. If you did, it would have to forcibly close the file handle because the thing's not there anymore. You can't touch it. Yes, and that's actually a difference between Linux and BSD. On on BSD, there's the concept of a forced unmount, where you can actually say, yes, I realize that that mount point is still in use by somebody, but unmount it anyway. On Linux, there's problems with that, just because people have it open and are using it, and the programs don't expect to suddenly it not be there. But BSD has a way, you know, just every attempt to use it will just return an error saying, hey, your file handle is no good anymore. This came up in ZFS recently, specifically the case, you know, I have a ZFS pool on a USB stick. I've pulled that USB stick out and maybe it's not even in the same building anymore. Uh, but I didn't export the pool and I can't unmount it because something's using it. How do I get rid of it? You mount dev USB dash dash fuck that guy. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, ZFS, turns out, gets really uh, persnickety when it's got data that it wants to write to that disk. And it's like, yeah, but if you do anything, this data will be lost, and ZFS doesn't want to lose your data. And it takes some convincing to tell ZFS that, yeah, just throw it away. What about that original question, then, of where can Christian get some information about Linux's historical quirks? Are there any books or anything you could recommend? Not really. No. I mean, it, it kind of boils down to, you know, the where do I find an answer to, you know, blank? The first answer is, you know, hit Google up and see if you can find anything. And if you get anything there, you know, for Linux specifically, um, you know, go over to Stack Exchange and uh, open up a question there. Somebody will probably pop along and answer it for some quick karma. Yeah. And like, there are some much more interesting quirks. Like, uh, I don't know what, if anything happens on Linux, but on BSD, there's this concept of, if you set a directory, to have the set group ID bit, then it controls, if you create a directory under it, what group will own in that directory by default changes based on whether you set the set GID bit on the parent directory and so on. There's all kinds of weird things you can do to change the default behavior of who owns files that get created in this directory. And, you know, I'm sure there's some historic reason for it and it's, it's all very interesting. But yeah, I don't know that there's one collection of all the weird shit. <laughs> Sounds like there's a gap in the market there, eh? This is the same thing we have at conferences where we have the old guys come in and tell stories. Like, uh, if you look at last week's episode and we had the one about TCP IP, uh, Kirk McCusey comes in uh, to one of our conferences and they'll be like, all right, you know, there are, there are three parts to this history of BSD thing and we'll just do a show of hands to pick one. Uh, and, you know, the TCP IP one is great. Uh, but there's, you know, one part in there just about the difference in the performance of a context switch between VAX and BSD. And so the government was trying to pick which one they were going to use for the ARPANET. And the VAX was winning on a couple of these benchmarks. And then the, as the story goes, uh, a week later, a box fell off the back of a truck in front of the university. And they had to open it to see who, who it belonged to, to to make sure it got to them. And it had the assembly optimized code for context switching in it. And then suddenly BSD was exactly as fast as VAX. Allegedly. <laughs> These are the kind of stories that you only get told in person. Yeah. Well, maybe next year we'll have a bit more of that, eh? Yes. So looking forward to that. Getting back to normal. Let's do some free consulting then. If you want to send your questions in for Jim and Alan, show at 2.5admins.com is the best. And if you want to support creation of these episodes, you can do so via Patreon or PayPal. Details at 2.5admins.com slash support. And thank you everyone who's supporting us. It really, really is appreciated. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. So go and check that out. All right, Ralph writes in, I have a Synology DS413. Love its reliability for a NAS as backup, but my needs and wants have changed. It only has one gigabyte of RAM and has a Quarig 32-bit CPU. I can't compile Go or Rust on it. I want something reliable for backups for my son and my wife's desktop and laptop computers. I would like to have a 24-7 server running virtual machines and or Docker. I'm very comfortable on the command line, so I don't need the ease of use web UI that Synology provides. I have no problem building a computer, but one thing that stops me from building a server for home I love how easy it is to replace a failed hard drive on the Synology. The hard drives are right there in front and I can just pop one out and replace it. What should I be looking at? I like the new powerful Synology systems, but I can't seem to get over the fact that their new CPUs still seem to be underpowered. 
Should I be looking at rack systems, or is there a tower case that exists that would allow such an easy and quick hard drive replacement? Silverstone Technology SST-CS380B. Um, that is a tower case. It's just a regular, you know, somewhat largish, but still mid-tower, not full tower. Um, and it's got eight front-mounted hot swap bays. So you can just, you know, pull your drives in and out with wild abandon, just as you would on your Synology. Other option is uh, you can buy the adapter kits that turn three of the five and a quarter inch like CD-ROM type bays into four hard drive hot swap bays. Yeah. And they just have the power and SAS connector at the back uh, and allow you to string that. Like I use that to turn an old tower case into a NAS. Be careful with those though. The quality differs tremendously. Rosewill makes uh, good hot swap cages like that. That's the ones that I bought. Well done. Uh, on the more expensive side, uh, Supermicro makes a uh, 4U pedestal case, which uh, what if you're not familiar, what pedestal actually means is you can put it in a rack as a 4U case, or you can, uh, um, it's got little feet that can go on the bottom. So you can have it, you know, sit up as a tower case. Now, the problem with that is one, they're kind of on the expensive side. Um, those are like, I want to say $450 cases, if I remember correctly. It's been a while since I used one. The bigger problem for me, honestly, is they are heavy like a freaking bank vault. Um, if you have to carry one around much, you will get sick of it real quick. The uh, The Silverstone case is not as nice as the Supermicro. It is a little plasticky, but I've used several of them and they do work. I haven't had any actual problems with them. That's a $165 case, so that's not, that's not terrible. That does sound like the right way to go. Yeah, the Supermicro ones, especially if they're meant to be rack mounted and are like for you, have to be made of much stiffer metal because you're going to have these rails and it's going to be leveraged out of the rack, hanging out a couple feet and it has to be very sturdy, but that makes them really heavy. And so, yeah, like like Jim said, the the Silverstone tech, uh, I had a couple of my computer cases from them and I've always been very pleased with them. The, the rack mount doesn't have to be as heavy as Supermicro. Like I no. use a ton of Rosewell rack mount for you cases that... They're not any heavier than you would assume, you know, like a, a good size, you know, good quality heavy steel tower case would be. But you get into one of those for you super micros and it's hernia time, buddy. That's a team lift. Yeah. Yeah. They they actually do say team lift on the box. And if you're a big, strong dude, you know, maybe you can be a team of one, but your doctors don't recommend it. <laughs> In terms of software, then, if you don't need a web GUI and you're happy on the command line, then... Yeah, just build your own, right? And uh, build it up either with Linux or BSD, whatever you're most comfortable with. Well, in particular, because what this guy seems to be after is doing a whole bunch of things, not just being a NAS, mm. an appliance type thing like a Synology or even an off-the-shelf NAS thing like FreeNAS or whatever, is just they're meant to do one thing and do it somewhat well. They're meant to do one thing and do it inexpensively in manufacturing terms. Yes. Uh, whereas if you want to, what you actually want is a storage server that's also a hypervisor and also a Docker thing. And I, you know, I want to be able to run random Go and Rust programs on it. Then what you want is a general purpose server that you just happen to also run your storage on rather than uh, you want, you know, a, a purpose built NAS. The only other one I would mention is if you actually want something more rack mounted, a good place for starter systems like that is uh, unixsurplus.com. They sell used Supermicro stuff, usually already kitted out with the right kind of HBA and the cables and stuff to, to hook up the drives. But those are, you know, rack mount systems, so they have really noisy fans and so on. They're just usually not great for home outside of a more home lab type setup. Like if you have a rack in a garage where the noise isn't going to be a problem, they work great. But, you know, for your house, something like uh, Jim recommended there, the, 
Silverstone are probably much, much better. If you don't want a mid-tower case, which a lot of people don't, a lot of people, uh, I find, are attached to, you know, the more mini ITX-ish form factor, the Synologies and what have you. Uh, you can also find mini ITX general server cases, uh, you know, with hot swap bays. Silverstone uh, makes one that is uh, mini ITX, small form factor, and it has got, I think it's also got eight bays on the front. Uh, considerably smaller, you know, one of those little cube kind of cases. There's a few people that make those. And we did talk about this before, but you would say it has to be ECC compatible, whatever motherboard and CPU you go for. No, we we don't say that. It doesn't have to be. It should be. ECC is a good idea, but you don't have to have ECC. It mostly comes down to, you know, how many of the server type features do you want? And do you want it to be reliable like a server? It's, it's just for your house, so maybe it's not that big a deal. But, you know, if you can get it with ECC, sure. But, you know, then you're talking a server motherboard, which has a bunch of extra features like IPMI and remote power management and stuff and is very helpful. But does it fit your budget or not? Which for something like that, you know, you can also, you can split the difference. You can get one of the ASRock rack boards, uh, you know, and a Ryzen processor. And uh, so, you know, you're not talking about a Xeon. You're not talking about an Epic. You're talking about the consumer processor, but it turns out it unofficially supports ECC. And the ASRock rack is one of the few motherboards for the Ryzen's that officially also supports ECC, which is why I've got two of those things sitting in my rack right next to me as we record this podcast. I've got a Ryzen 3700X and I've got a Ryzen 2700X, one above the other in the rack, each of them with 64 gigs ECC RAM. And the ASRock ones come with IPMI too, right? Yes, they do. Which, you know, uh, can be harder to find on the more consumerish boards. So it's a, a nice kind of happy medium of a, it's it's a server. It's just, you know, a cheap home server. And yeah, I think the Ryzen's the way to go because like you were saying, you want a reasonably powerful CPU. And if you want to run a bunch of VMs on it, you want to be able to stuff it with RAM. Just don't try and get a Ryzen 5000 because they're like rocking horse shit at the moment. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. You can send your questions to show at 2.5admins.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll be back next week.